My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, and welcome to It's Complicated with me, Tanya Goodin, the podcast to help you untangle your relationship with your phone. This is a podcast about learning to live healthily and happily with technology and the digital world and understanding why sometimes that's so hard to do. I'm your host, Tanya Goodin, author and founder of digital wellbeing movement, Time to Log Off. Each week, I'll be asking a new guest how they can help us with the relationship with the tiny tyrant in our pocket, our smartphone. It's good to be back with the podcast. Sorry that there's been a bit of a hiatus between Series 6 and Series 7. And that's because I've been busy writing and then launching a new book. My brain has too many tabs open, which contains 24 stories of people I've worked with over the last few years to help with their relationship with tech. It's out now in English and there will be various foreign language editions out this year including Greek, Thai and Vietnamese. But back to the podcast, I'm particularly happy to be launching Series 7 with a chat with Rory Kecklin-Jones, who was the BBC's technology correspondent for nearly 15 years. And before that, he covered tech as part of his beat uh, as business correspondent. I chatted to Rory about the highs and the lows of the last couple of decades of the smartphone revolution why Tim Berners-Lee isn't good for a soundbite, his misgivings about Elon Musk, the exciting new tech trial uh, he's taken part in that might help fellow Parkinson's sufferers, and how UK Twitter helped him find his dog-napped dog cabbage in lockdown London. After we stopped recording, we actually carried on chatting for at least as long again, and I wished I had kept the record button on. He's such a great listen. And I hope you really enjoy what I recorded with him. So, Rory, welcome to It's Complicated. 
Well, thank you. Very excited to be here. I, I love talking about myself. I love talking about <laughs> smartphones. So it's going to be <laughs> it's great. It's the perfect combination, <laughs> isn't it? So your book, Always On, which we're going to talk quite a lot about, I think. I, I just reread it again before I had you on the podcast. And I, I mean, it is the perfect history of the smartphone revolution, isn't it? And the digital revolution. And you were in this kind of unique position of sitting watching it all unfold yes I was lucky I was after years of sort of covering technology but being a business correspondent and desperately wanting to cover technology the BBC's finally said oh okay and in 2007 they retitled me as technology correspondent and that was my first big story was the unveiling of the iPhone which I sort of mark as the moment the smartphone era began and then the the book basically starts starts there and covers the next 15 years, which has been a, a period of extraordinary change. Yeah, I remember, I think I've said it before in the podcast, but I remember queuing up to buy, so it was June 2007, it was launched in the US, I think, and you were there, weren't you, live tweeting and covering it? Well, it was unveiled in January was, 2007 ah, by yeah. Steve Jobs. Oh, that's right, sale. then it went on sale, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I was there when this this device was produced by this magician with his extraordinary <laughs> performance, which at the time I thought was way over the top because it was the first time I'd been to that kind of, you know, revivalist rally style of product launch. He said at the beginning, we're going to make some history here today, at which point I thought, oh, my God. But he was right. It turned out mm. that they were making history. It was a historic product, turned out to be the single most profitable product ever made. Wow. Talking about history, that's actually a very nice intro to a quote from your book that I just wanted to read out to you from Leonard Posner, whose son was really sadly killed at the Sandy Hook um, school massacre in the US. And he said, history books will refer to this period as a time of mass delusion we weren't prepared for the internet. We thought the internet would bring all these wonderful things such as research, medicine, science, an accelerated society of good. But all we did was hold up a mirror to society and we saw how angry, sick and hateful humans can be. So from that moment, when the magician unveiled the, <laughs> the magic you know, device, where did it all go wrong? When did we move from... That you know, massive. I remember it. That incredible period of kind of hope and excitement to fear. Well, I mean, what, what's important first of all is to set the context. It wasn't just about the iPhone or smartphones. What you had coming together was this period of extraordinary innovation. So, two thousand and four, Facebook was created. Two thousand and five, YouTube came along. Two thousand and six, Twitter, and then two thousand and seven, the iPhone. And it was that combination of these brilliant little computers that we carried with us everywhere uh, and these incredibly powerful social networks that seemed to connect everyone that was such a force for change. And yes, at first we thought it was a force for good. And you remember the excitement, for instance, in 2011 with the, the, the Arab Spring, where Facebook was credited with launching the Arab Spring revolts in, in in other countries put down to social media and the availability of smartphones as tools of creativity and uh, media distribution, huge force for change. So I think the first 
five years or so of that revolution, when everybody was desperate to get hold of one of these pieces of kit and uh, to use it and to communicate and find new ways of communicating, were incredibly hopeful. And I kind of put the high point as the 2012 London Olympics opening ceremony, which I was fortunate enough to be at. And of course, during that, Tim Berners-Lee, the creator of the World Wide Web, although amusingly, the NBC commentator's at the ceremony didn't know who he was and I remember said, I remember reading that in your book yes. yeah we'll have to google him of course <laughs> they wouldn't have been able to google him if he hadn't created the world wide web yeah. anyway he sent a tweet around the stadium and around the world saying this is for everyone which kind of summed up the kind of utopian vision of that era of connectivity that it would bring everyone together it would it would liberate everybody. It would be instead of a broadcast medium, which television was, and which, to be frank, in the early stages, the Internet and the World Wide Web were, it would be an interactive, creative, a, a read-write space somewhere where, you know, anyone could be a journalist, anyone could be an artist, anyone could be a movie maker. You didn't have to have a Hollywood studio or a, a TV news station to reach the world. And there was a lot of excitement and an awful lot of naivety about that period. It was a real goosebump moment, wasn't it, that opening ceremony? I remember it so vividly with him sitting there tapping away. Yeah, it was... This slightly eccentric, slightly shambling figure, yeah. Yes, incredible. So if that was the kind of peak hope moment, when it, it could you... I mean, so much has happened, but is there a moment where you think that is where it all turned? The moment where everybody, you know, the gloss came off, the emperor's new clothes were revealed. We all thought, oh, there's something actually that's going on here that, you know, we didn't anticipate, we didn't want. It's it's going in a not very pleasant direction. Well, on an individual level, we all saw these, these spaces which many of us liked. I mean, I loved Twitter. I still quite like Twitter. In 2007, when I was asked by the BBC to do a piece about all these social networks that were starting, I joined them all. The The entire London tech community gathered first on Facebook in the summer of 2007, and by December had all moved to Twitter. And it seemed great. It was the place to share stories, to meet people. I made lots of friends through it. But it it was only a few years on, I I think during the 2010 general election, when I was called digital election correspondent, and I had to follow all the politicians, I began to see, you know, the poison entering the bloodstream, as it were. So I, I, I became aware, and lots of people became aware of the potential for trolling. But I don't think it was until, sort of, frankly, the, the, the 2016 Trump election that you became aware of how powerful this 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 new medium was to sway people's views and then you know something actually much more serious really than what happened in America what happened uh, in Myanmar when Facebook came to a country which was you know, living in the 19th century and was propelled into the 21st century where connectivity arrived very suddenly. It was all Facebook and it was exploited by various people who were intent on persecuting the Rohingya minority and ended up being blamed for effectively for for genocide. Mm. So by then we'd become aware of just how dangerous this technology could be. 
I think you've talked in your book about the Cambridge Analytica scandal, which obviously is all tied up with the 2016 election. And what's really interesting to me is that so many school children, people who aren't in the tech community, you know, the wider public knew about that and it made a big difference to how they felt about tech. Yes. Or did they or didn't they? I mean, again, Twitter, Facebook, they they hold up a mirror to to our society, but they also quite often become filter bubbles where your Twitter, your Facebook, your Instagram may be telling you that everybody's extremely worried about Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, but other people's really aren't at all. Really aren't at all and discussing celeb gossip, sharing beauty tips, or frankly just having an awful lot of fun. I mean, it's easy to forget how much fun people get from social media. Look at TikTok now. Most people are not taking this stuff seriously. Uh, A minority are taking it too seriously and are, are being damaged by it. But there is an awful lot of creative, fun stuff happening in on those platforms. It's just that they also have the potential to cause a lot of damage. Yeah, so you've we talked about Tim Berners-Lee and, and 2012, and I know you've interviewed him lots of times. And I can't remember the the date, but you said there was a point, there was an interview you did with him where you felt his optimism had changed. You said up to that point, every time you'd seen him, he'd been you know, very positive, very kind of anti-regulation, anti-reigning in big tech. And he got to the stage where he said, actually, something needs to happen. So, yeah, I mean, he, when was that? When was that moment? I think that's probably 2019, which was the 30th anniversary of him writing oh, the proposal right. yeah, yeah. for the web. This document on which his boss wrote, I think, vague but interesting. And that was the foundation of the World Wide Web. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, he's an extraordinary man. I, I love him dearly, but he is a nightmare to interview because he goes off in all sorts of directions. I always think he's a bit like the, his, his own creation because he will go charging <laughs> down one direction and then yeah. then it's as if he's clicked on a link and gone off in, to somewhere else and getting a soundbite out of him. He's the opposite of a soundbite merchant, which is, is good in many ways. He's a very sophisticated thinker. But he did say something very striking on, on that occasion because he said earlier, I used to say, why do people worry about all this? Much as I've been saying, you can have a great time on the web. He said, I have a great time on the web. I exchange ideas with my peers. It's incredibly collaborative. And yeah, there's bad stuff, but you just don't need to go there. You just need to ignore it. And, and then he said he came to a sudden realisation, which was these people vote. He meant the people who were doing the bad stuff as he saw it on on the internet and they had the potential to cause great damage and that's when he woke up to the fact that something had to be done although what I'm afraid is still rather vague. Yeah so how I mean there's a lot of debate about and you know Leonard Posner talked about it big tech will say all that's happening online is, you know, we're seeing ourselves in a horrible reality of how unpleasant we could all be. It's all about the users. It's not about the platform. How much blame do you think can be laid at the door of all these platforms for what's going on? And what 
what didn't they ask themselves? What questions didn't they think about when they set them up? I think that line that you're quoting, that they're just holding up a mirror to society, I think that's that's gone. I mean, in the early days, there was this spirit out there. I think it's a John Perry Barlow quote about telling politicians, don't think you can come to our land, the land of the internet, which is a free place and, and bring you know, earthbound rules to us. And that was the spirit of this very sort of Californian tech movement. You know, it's it's a different place, the internet. It doesn't con- conform to your boring old rigid rules and don't try to govern it. They quickly woke up to the fact that that was not going to wash. Governments were determined to regulate. And if you look, some governments have regulated very successfully. China, for instance, we certainly don't want to go down that road. But I think what what they what they got wrong was encapsulated in that that line from Facebook: "Move fast and break things." That mm-hmm. that was a sensible way of building the future, and it was a sensible way of building a multi multi billion dollar corporation but it was not a great way of building a safe future. And they continually ignored their own power. Mark Zuckerberg, you know, is like the sort of the, the boy in the sorcerer's apprentice madly rushing around trying to mop up the the flood. And I think one key moment, it was sort of a few days after the November 2016 presidential election, when he he literally laughed at the idea that... Facebook could have oh, an influence. Oh, yes, that they could influence the election. Yes, I remember yeah. that. Yeah, He said that's yeah. crazy and, and laughed and he had to withdraw that and apologise for that. Mm. But there has been that that naivety combined with that that ruthless determination which served him and others really well that all that mattered were was two things, attention and growth. Build it and they will come. Don't worry. Don't worry actually about making money at start the money will come as long as you can hook them into your product and keep it growing my business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments then tap to pay on iphone and stripe came along and changed everything with tap to pay on iphone and stripe i streamlined my payment process effortlessly now i can accept in-person contactless payments right from my iphone No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, Visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. It's really interesting. I can't remember if this is in your book or if you've seen it, but you know Professor Fogg, whose lab, you know, kind of invented persuasive tech. There's actually a video that he made back in, I think it's 2004, where he talks about how how all this tech could be used for ill if it's in the wrong hands and if we don't think about it carefully, which is fascinating. He was that quite is fascinating. I'm always slightly suspicious, mind you, of of this argument that these these products are designed to interest and entice you, because of course they are. Who yeah. whoever builds any kind of product with that's boring, with the aim of, <laughs> yes. yeah. you're not going to be that into this. Yeah. This car, it's fine, but you know you can take it or it's leave it. It's a bit uninspiring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think you've got to start from the point point of view that that's a given. So, talking about being uninspiring and inspiring, who you've interviewed everybody in tech over your career, and this might be a really difficult thing to pin down, but who was the most inspiring person and then on the flip side who was the one that you know made you worry the most or gave you the most sort of feeling of unease when you interviewed them I was going to put them both in the same category but no I'm going to pick pick one as the most inspiring not necessarily because he is the most charismatic person on earth but because I love the mission which is Eben Upton, the, the founder of Raspberry Pi, who is is a classic geek. You know, he's a software guy, a chip designer, and also an academic. And he and a guy called David Braben, another really interesting man, a, a games pioneer who invented the world's first 3D space game, Elite. They came to my office in Television Centre in 2011 to show me a little thing called the Raspberry Pi, which they said was going to change computing and I took a video of it on on my phone put it on YouTube and it went viral and they said you know that that helped convince them that this thing they better get on with it because there was an interest and I found the whole Raspberry Pi story an unusually positive one it's not Mm. it's not one of those where you look at it and say yeah it's a great device but is it too addictive is it going to cause trouble is it gonna you know persuade people to hate each other no not really there's there's nothing not to like about raspberry pi so that that was inspirational if if i'm to think about the person who i'm uneasy about and i wasn't uneasy about him at the time it's elon musk i spent months and months (laughs) trying to get an interview and promising an interview to my bosses with elon musk in 2016 when 
he wasn't that famous at that stage and got the interview and so was incredibly and drove from Las Vegas to LA in a Tesla to to meet him. <laughs> that sounds like a plot of a film. Yeah, I know. It, felt, it all felt a bit Hunter S. Thompson. And at one stage, my producer was driving and we put the autopilot system on and the car tried to leave the freeway, which unnerved oh us slightly. Yeah, so there, it, was a, it was a big deal. And we interviewed him in this extraordinary design centre he's got. And it was kind of a James Bond villain's lair. Or, you know, Iron Man's lab, potentially, uh, with cars under black sheets because we were not supposed to see them and engineers gathered in front of IMAX screens, feverishly discussing some design point. Uh, And in walks this slightly unassuming guy at first, mumbling a bit in in a sort of black baggy suit and sits down. And at first, I think this interview is not going to be that great. And then he starts coming up with brilliant lines, like, for instance... He said that in a few years' time, owning a car you actually have to drive yourself will be like owning a horse, something you do for sentimental rather than practical reasons. He really is a king of sound bites, isn't yeah. he? Unlike uh, Tim well, he's, he's, yeah. They're not exactly sound bites, but they're kind of arresting lines in the middle, in the middle of a sort of slight ramble. He, he would just drop in a phrase like, when we are a multi-planet species. So... I was very pleased to have got this interview and it delivered. During the the setup shots afterwards, he came up with another great line, which luckily we got on camera, talking about some new app he got called Summon, which allowed you to summon your car out of the garage to come to you. And he said, that's nothing. One day your car will be in New York, you'll be in Los Angeles and you'll summon it and it will drive itself across the United States, stopping to recharge itself until it gets to you. And I said, yeah, but that's going to be years away. And he said, no, only a couple of years. And that was in 2016. And that was a sort of flavour of both his imagination and uh, drive, but also his kind of over-optimism about how quickly the world's going to change. And, and he's ever possibly since... trying to take over Twitter at the moment. Yeah, <laughs> he's, he's trying to buy Twitter. Um, how do you feel about that? Well, I'm more concerned... About about his his general behaviour on Twitter and mm. his extraordinary disregard for, you know, for the rules, which some people would say is a good thing, but, you know, a public company... He's become... Says, he's taken Trump's position on Twitter now, hasn't he? Yeah. he And he's a kind of... He, there are Trump, Trump-esque elements to his behaviour. Yeah. He's madly promoting cryptocurrency, which I'm very dubious about, in the most irresponsible way. He attacks his enemies. And, you know, if you say anything bad about him, he's one of those people who've got ferociously loyal supporters who will savage you if you utter Mm. even a word of criticism. And yet he's founded two amazing companies, Tesla and SpaceX, which have changed the world. Although Tesla is massively overvalued by any any measure it's worth more than the whole of the car industry combined which Mm. seems a bit optimistic to me but there we are so was there ever a moment covering all of this covering the kind of you know going from optimism and hope to kind of despair and then back again where you felt that you had to give up on any form of tech yourself I'm trying to remember Someone you interviewed in the book, where you you asked them if they'd stop using Facebook. Yeah, uh, actually, I think it was Damien Collins. Oh, that's right. Yes. So yeah. Damien Collins, the MP, who actually did a really good job as chairman of the Select Committee on 
culture, media and sport of holding Facebook to account and was one of Facebook's most you know bitter foes. But he found it impossible to give up because he used it for organising his constituency work. Have I ever given it up? No, I, I, I did do one little stunt for the radio where I tried to give it up for a, a day or so, just internet connectivity and found it a pain. So no, and I do worry about it from time to time. My screen time as shown on my iPhone is pretty disastrous. What is it? Go on, share it with us. Average God, amount of time. It, it can be. Let's just have a look through here now. Screen time. Where's screen time? It can be as much as 10 hours a day. Screen time. Let's oh have a look. Gosh. Daily average, 8 hours and 16 minutes. And that says down 15% from last... Oh, down 5%. I think that's average, week. actually, Rory. I think the oh, last no, Ofcom figures said 8 hours 20 or something for oh, adults. Well. No, so, it's, it's actually nine hours and 15 minutes, I now see. Okay. <laughs> and most of that is Twitter. So actually, I'm going to quote, I, I quoted from somebody else in your book. I'm actually going to quote from you now. I really love this quote. You said, looking at the constant stream of misinformation at the way social networks appear to have magnified social and political divisions and at the addictive nature of the phones that have helped make all this possible it would be easy to get depressed. <laughs> yes, I thought. So why are you not depressed? about the state of the digital world about the state of the tech world because you're very I have to say you're you know the end of your book you're very positive and hopeful and optimistic so make us all positive and hopeful please well the book has got this sort of story art where the first section is quite chipper and optimistic and sees all these changes and the second section goes into all the bad stuff that's happened but the third section which was always meant to be about health and in particular my health and the potential of this technology to have an impact on that was changed because it was written during the pandemic. So mm. it reflected really on how the pandemic showed both the good and the bad sides of the technology. And the good side for me, which makes me continually optimistic, is how valuable that connectivity was. I've got a granddaughter now, three, she was one and a half, two, when the pandemic was underway and couldn't see her for months on end saw her every morning on FaceTime where she would do a little dance and generally act Aww. up and that was great <laughs> but in general I mean I suppose what I think about it is it's not going to go away so what's the point in being depressed about it it's like being depressed about the telegraph in the 19th century or television <laughs> in the 20th century yeah. oh gosh I feel so down about television we've got to learn to live with these technologies and try and make them servants rather than masters. And they do, you know, science moves forward and science generally makes our lives better. And here's a, for instance, I'm, I'm writing these days quite a lot about technology and health. And these devices have great potential to help us monitor our health better and Im improve the way we live. Tell us a little bit about your health and, you know, maybe give us an example of, of, of a tech development that is going to help you and help others. Well, I was diagnosed at the beginning of 2019 with Parkinson's. I've also got another long-term condition. I had a malignant melanoma behind my left eye, which is still there, a little tumour 
malignant tumour lurking there, which I've had treatment for at various stages, never quite goes away. So I've got two long-term conditions. And I'm not saying that they're, they're, they're great, but I, I managed to live with them. And I type incredibly slowly because of my Parkinson's. And I've got a terrible bad back at the moment, which stops me getting around. But what I'm seeing is a lot of inspiring work using smartphones, using artificial intelligence to try and combat these conditions. So I'm involved in a trial which will produce a wearable device which will measure the symptoms of Parkinson's. And therefore, I mean, one of the difficult things about Parkinson's is it's got a very wide range of symptoms and it's quite difficult to measure. And that that is important when you're coming to develop new drugs, which are desperately needed, because there was one new drug a few years ago which seemed promising, but its performance wasn't that much better as measured by the very crude scale that they have than the placebo drug given to other people on a trial. So I'm very interested in this work using smartphones and other technology to measure the symptoms of, of Parkinson's and therefore install that tech in, in people's homes during drug trials to see exactly whether they are getting better or not. So I'm just looking at a story today about another another smartwatch. There's a lot of work going on on with wearables in general and health. I think it's really fascinating looking at health and tech and there's there's so many good news stories I think or potential there's a lot of hype but there's a lot of good news too. AI, you know, in the in the my last year in the BBC every email seemed to be either about AI or about cryptocurrency. Now AI is a lot yeah. more sensible than cryptocurrency but there's a lot of hype around both subjects. Yeah. But but Social media itself is something that I still think, I don't know if you agree, it's still difficult to know how that can become more positive given the business model. Yeah, I mean, there's a very interesting example of how something that is working where I speak to, in the book to Jimmy Wales of Wikipedia. Wikipedia has never had an advertising business model. And he says that is one reason why, although it's had its problems, it's not quite riven with the sort of nightmare of abuse and misinformation that other places are. But advertising is the only way much of the internet survives economically. So we've got to find ways of making that work better. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I, I mean, I, I talk about Wikipedia in my book as well. And, you know, that, that model is about people donating because they want Wikipedia to continue. I've I've donated mm. regularly to it. And I think it's interesting what The Guardian are doing as well. With So different payment models, maybe, that aren't about advertising, that are about supporters and subscribers. You know, maybe that's the way yes. to go. Mark Zuckerberg, if you're listening. <laughs> yeah, it's the advertising that's the problem. I can't end without talking about Cabbage, your lovely dog, who yeah. I sadly never met, and I know is no longer with us, but... One of my personal pleasures, you were talking about the good and the bad of, of tech in lockdown. And I feel like dogs were a real theme of <laughs> lockdown in the UK. So I spoke to Andrew Cotter about Oliver Mabel. Oh, and, Andrew's. Yeah, that was wonderful. amazing. All yeah, the um, so funny, wonderful videos he did. But you every day tweeted a picture of you taking cabbage for a walk and... Those tweets, I, I, you know, I remember looking at Twitter every day to see your early morning walk. It was her. interesting. Some people thought, I had a friend who said, God, that's so boring. Will you stop going on about your bloody dog? But I kept on. Not a dog person, that person. No. <laughs> I'm guessing. Yeah. 
But I kept on because other people, there was a, a journalist based in Hong Kong who said, please carry on because I see every afternoon my time and it's a reminder of home. Uh, and they were quite dull pictures because it was usually, especially during lockdown, there's exactly the same path. And then there was the whole drama of when the dog was stolen. Yes. Uh, dog Walker's van was hijacked with half a dozen dogs, including ours, in it. And that became a social media event. Were you, uh, weren't you on the news interviewed about that? Because your tweet I, I was, asking yeah. about I remember retweeting it. Everyone retweeted I don't know how many retweets you got, but hundreds an, an of awful thousands. Lot. Yeah, the Ford Motor Company got in touch to say that the van which had been stolen had an app with it and the, the van owner could maybe track it oh. and, he, and, and is that how they found it well no? it sort of told us whereabouts the van was roughly or had been but then quite separately somebody walking their dog came across the dogs in that area which had been released uh, and were just wandering the streets and it was quite old-fashioned that dog was wearing a tag with my wife's mobile phone number on it oh. this kind person rang that was very positive and when the poor old dog died uh, a couple of months later she was very old just the outpouring of sympathy yeah. was just really touching I have to say yeah it was lovely I mean and I think it was Twitter you know you were talking about the early days of Twitter I remember I was reminiscing with Sue Black as well who I had on the podcast about the time Stephen Fry got stuck in a lift yes absolutely <laughs> it didn't Classic seem moments. that it seemed like there weren't that many of us on Twitter yeah. that was 2007 I think yes. and how it was a fun place to be, wasn't it? It was a, there was a lot of humour. It was fun, and you. It was also that, to be honest, that slightly clubby feeling of oh, I'm part of something which yeah, no one else most knows people, about. Most people yeah. don't know about, and and it's great. Yes, there still is that feeling about Twitter, but in a negative way, I think, because yeah. as you just said, you mentioned earlier on, we people on Twitter think that that is the world. And actually, the majority of people are not using it and tweeting. So and may not share your politics. So I just want to end with two final questions, Rory, that I have for all the guests um, on the podcast, which are, what three words would you use to sum up your own relationship with tech? My own relationship with tech. Excited, magic, baffled. <laughs> I love that. I love that. I love that they're so positive. Why baffled? Because quite often when I first have a piece of tech explained to me, I don't come from a tech background and I'm absolutely baffled. For instance, quantum computing does my head in. <laughs> NFTs do my head in. I have yeah. tried and tried you know, <laughs> to get my I head around them. I've, I've made my mind up about NFTs and they're a bad thing. Yeah. Like crypto, possibly. Yeah. I'm going to get yeah. lots of people telling me that they're a marvellous thing. And my second question, what do you think you've learned about yourself from your relationship with your smartphone over the years? What has it told you? I think it has been a bit of a warning to me that I am maybe a bit more of an addictive personality than I thought. That I can while away hours scrolling through Twitter, which is not often a useful activity so it's been a bit of a wake-up call to me that you know i i need every now and then to exert some self-control are you really though have you really got an addictive personality or is it the tech 
I feel like that's an essay question. <laughs> Discuss. Yeah, because I think we all feel like that, don't we? We all feel, gosh, addictive. Well, my wife really likes tech and, and writes about it quite a bit uh, from a more academic point of view. But she is far more controlled than I am. She will mm-hmm. wake up and look at her Twitter and then she'll put it down and get on with her day. She's an academic, isn't she? Yeah. So she needs lots of focus. Yeah. She's able to focus. Yeah. But I envy her. <laughs> So where can people find out more about you, Rory, and your work? Obviously, your book, Always My book, On. Always On, Hope and Fear yeah. in the Social Smartphone Era. I've now got a Substack newsletter. Yeah, uh, I've signed up to that, and it's excellent, I have to it's say. It's about health and really technology, good. and it's free, although there is an option to pay, and I'm going to work out at some stage the way of giving people who pay something extra, but it's free. And my Twitter account, at Ruskin147 which has got about 200,000 followers. So I still tweet an awful lot on that. (laughs) That's good to hear. Thank you so much. I have really, really loved chatting to you. It's been brilliant. It's been huge fun. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of It's Complicated. If you haven't already, please do subscribe, rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. It helps new people find us, and it means you get a helpful notification whenever a new episode drops. For more about getting a healthy balance with tech, you can follow me, Tanya Goodin, or Time to Log Off on Instagram and Twitter. And my latest book, My Brain Has Too Many Tabs Open, is available at Amazon and at all good bookshops. Finally, for more information about this and other episodes in the podcast series, visit itstimetologoff.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.